0: Join Flux Factory on June 10th at 4pm for their third annual Fluxathon, a crazy event that is part parade, part dinner dance party, part participatory art showdown, part walkathon, and 100% Fluxy. All are invited to march with teams through LIC from our home base, Flux Factory, to the lovely LIC Artist Gallery located on the scenic waterfront of Hunters Point. Proceeds from the Fluxathon support Flux Factory. Purchase tickets at www.flux-a-thon.com. Hello and welcome to Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson.
1: And I'm William Pauheida.
0: Today on the show we've got the equivalent of a Lynx roundup with a little something special, art.
1: <laughs> Which we'll talk about at the end after we get through a lot of news uh, from the last month or so.
0: So yeah, so maybe what we should do is just like sort of frame um, the news that are that's coming up with sort of general social media saturation bullshit stuff.
1: Yeah, well I've been feeling definitely a, some anxiety around how much news I'm consuming or what kind of news I'm reading. And I think this this week it was the the New York Times profile on Jordan Peterson, the Canadian professor psychoanalyst who thinks um, that there's a crisis uh, in masculinity right now. (laughs) Uh, And basically, the profile makes me glad that I'm not subscribing to The New York Times. I'm really kind of skeptical of the endless Donald Trump coverage, uh, you know, and that's been happening uh, while this week Congress quietly gutted Dodd-Frank, the financial laws that were put in place after the financial crisis to kind of prevent the banks from engaging in risky speculation. And, and right now, Congress is continuing to work on a way to undermine the Volcker rule, which really is, is, is designed to prevent banks from making risky investments with their depositors' money. And I guess, you know, maybe it's just my own like outrage fatigue setting in, but I'm ready for a little less news, which is ironic since we're going to talk a lot about news uh, in today's episode.
0: Well, a couple things. First, Jordan Peterson um, makes me embarrassed to be a Canadian because he Mm. too is a Canadian. Our country, or (laughs) Canadians, have assholes too, and I guess we have our own professional assholes. That was a story that I did not click through on because it encourages The Times and other media organizations to give time to ideas that are not worth the time. And I think that that's part of what feeds this kind of... um, media environment now which makes me like not really want to engage in the news at all. I do have to say that like I'm still subscribed to the Times. I can't fault them for all of the outrage fatigue that that I have, but I do feel like they are responsible for a certain amount of like dithering on stories that are sort of designed just to get their reporters more access to the White House.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I wasn't going to read the piece on Jordan Peterson either. I saw that it was out and there was some discussion about it on Twitter. And it struck me as another sort of like point where the New York Times chooses to profile someone whose views are pretty much have been described as dangerous and are fairly abhorrent. And I got into a bit of a Twitter spat with like Felix Salmon and Manu uh, Sadi, um, you know, about like this idea that maybe I would just be sticking my head in the sand and sort of ignoring something that we need to know about this kind of like dangerous figure. And my feeling was that, you know, Jordan Peterson supporters would just see it as a kind of like hit piece or that it would just you know, double their resolve to you know, support their, their controversial leader that Peterson is sort of becoming for this like awful men's right movement. So I actually asked my, my father and my brother, my father is sort of a failed communist and my brother is a diehard Trump supporter, uh, if they had read the piece and it had changed their mind at all. And my brother immediately responded with something just saying like, uh, no, this is just you know, a hit piece by the liberal New York Times And, uh, you know, Dad, congratulations on displaying some critical thinking skills. And my father hasn't gotten back to me, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, whatever the Times coverage was about Peterson. And and, and when I finally read it, I was kind of shocked that, that Felix had called it, like, really good journalism, because I felt like it was just... Uh, The reporter had just asked 10 Peterson, you know, supporters what they thought about his views. And there was maybe one or two contrarian voices that spoke out uh, about Peterson criticizing his perspectives. But for the most part, it was just a kind of not 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 a very well done like hit piece on Peterson at all, uh, <laughs> which it sort of defeats the purpose or at least Felix's, you know, sort of argument that that this was uh, great reporting that would uh, illuminate the dangers of Peterson's perspective for the thoughtful reader. Whereas, you know, my brother just dismissed it and my father has not responded to me. So I don't think he's, it, it changed his mind in any significant way. But all of this is just, uh, you know, I'm still grappling with this idea that like, because I disagree with the Times coverage and some of their uh, op-ed contributors like Ross Duthat, that I I don't want to support the rest of their important journalism. Um, Because I know they just released a really, uh, like, I I would like to read the series on the housing crisis in New York City. It's like a three-part report that they just put out that I think is probably really important. Um, And to read it, I'm going to have to scale a paywall. So I'm, you know, confronted with my own uh, ethical conundrum of of should I be stealing news?
0: Yeah, I mean, look like organizations like as large as the Times are never going to produce everything we like. I think that because of course there's so much riding on the line with the Times, there's uh, they get put under a mic, not under a microscope exactly, but like we pick on them more because they're more important. But like I I do think they're. The ways in which they fail are significant, and I, I do think that this is a, a good example of that. I think we do have to be careful about who we decide gets the platform of the times, because he as a figure, he has a certain amount of attention independent of the times, which sort of got him there in the first place. Mm -hmm. But like, there is no reason we need to contribute to that.
1: Yeah, I think our mutual friend John Powers tweeted something like, you know, how many more profiles on the Nazi next door or misogynist does our democracy need? You know? yeah, we don't. <laughs> I know. And, you know, it It also makes me think that if this journalism is so crucial to our democracy, what does it mean that it's hidden behind a paywall, that a lot of people aren't going to, you know, get access to this? And that um, I think that's also troubling.
0: Well, the, the really important works that the New York Times does, they drop the paywall. So, like, you know, I think during the presidential election, they drop the paywall when there's a huge... Um, humanitarian crisis thing. I think the crisis said, this is ongoing. I know. Well, I'm this pretty is sure it. the paywall
1: may need to be dropped all the fucking time. You know? uh, otherwise, we're not going to get out of this. Uh, New York Times crisis. needs a
0: drip model, I think. Yeah, well, you
1: know, I would love it if it was just free and open and I wasn't um, caught with this this awful feeling of not you know, contributing to quality journalism because I disagree with you know, some of their editorial decisions and who they choose to profile. I don't want to end up being the Elon Musk of, uh, you know, arts reporting. Because oh,
0: God, <laughs> Now What did he say yesterday over Twitter? He was he wants to create
1: start- a website called Pravda, which is basically Verit2, to, 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 to verify the factualness of, of the reporting going on. I mean, it was just what an yeah, asshole. Yeah, totally absurd. So, you know, it definitely made me check my own, you know, bullshit on, on what sort of count Journalism because that guy, you know, I don't know. There's just too many asshole men in the world right now.
0: Oh my God, it's such a problem. (laughs) But anyway, going on to speak of um, other things, the freeze art fair. So that came and went.
1: Yeah, it seems like it was uh, forever ago and it was just this month.
0: So this year the fair was really hot?
1: Incredibly hot. I don't know, did you go on Wednesday or Thursday?
0: I went on Wednesday, so that was during, I don't know... I don't know which day was hotter. Uh, there were a hell of a lot of people there for the uh, preview and next to no air conditioning. I do have what I think is the inside scoop on what happened.
1: Yeah, I heard a little of this from our mutual friend that Wednesday evening, which was also uh, my birthday. And But I'll, please share this story. I think it's really actually fascinating.
0: Yeah, like apparently it's. we can just talk this up to poor art fair management, according to her anyway uh what she said was that she when she went to the bathroom the bathrooms are sort of uh stocked with security guards for who knows what reason but uh there was a security guard who called her over because apparently she was looking very hot and in this like small space that was about uh, a foot wide there was a cold air rushing through and on i think on either side there was a uh, drywall and basically what had happened is that the um freeze construction workers had walled off the uh, bathrooms but the bathrooms so the drywall there but the bathrooms were also the entry point the main entry point for uh the air conditioning that would be circulated around the fair so what was supposed to be like a several several feet wide opening was just this like small thing that dribbled out air conditioning to like one person at a time.
1: I just, I have to unpack that for one second because what I'm understanding is that if that wall had not been built in front of that, that most of the air conditioning coming into freeze would have been going through the bathrooms. (laughs) I, you know, I, I used the restroom when I was there and it has a, you know, a, a lemon scent, let's say I could, I could imagine that that may not have been the ideal passageway for all of the air conditioning coming through freeze.
0: Right. Well, I guess apparently, I mean, I think the thing is, is that the people that work on the, the fair ventilation and um, air conditioning are not the same people who work on the construction of, of the tent, So if they're not talking to each other, then you end up with things like the air conditioning not working and not really being able to do a hell of a lot about it. Yeah.
1: And I mean, it it raises a couple of serious points. I mean, it was so hot that it really, it sent like collectors scurrying. People left the fair and that uh, Freeze has announced that they're going to provide some form of compensation uh, to the dealers for potential lost business and probably just the general discomfort. I mean, a lot of what made Freeze so appealing in previous iterations was the fact that it didn't feel like, you know, a chicken farm where everyone's stuck in their little cubes, that it was the sort of open range or the free range art fair where you could feel more comfortable Uh, looking at so much art. And in this case, it felt like an oven, like we were just in there cooking. And to that point, I think, you know, Freeze's director also acknowledged that this kind of unseasonably warm weather is probably the new normal, and that it it raises a sort of question, like, is a tent built on Randall's Island uh, the best way to go? Because if she's sort of serious about the implications of climate change, do you think, like, just you know, doubling the amount of AC uh, is probably the best way to go (laughs) to address this. Um, I mean, if if they're serious about confronting the issue, they might want to think about uh, another site or location or trying to get a little bit more creative with um, how they're going to deal with uh, climate change.
0: I I really was just sort of amazed that climate change even came up as an explanation for why the fair, like, didn't have functioning air conditioning. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't think they were expecting 80 degree temperature, uh, you know, like in early May.
0: But it's not unheard of at all. Like, I think that happened last year. We had a record breaking day. It just wasn't on the same day as freeze. So that.
1: So if that's the new normal. They're going to have to really, yeah, I guess, have a lot more AC.
0: I mean, my favorite part (laughs) about that fair, I don't even know if it was my favorite part, but it was, like, the most sadistic, I think, was, like, watching all the women, like, who had plastic surgery face with, like, their makeup, like, melting off their face, and their face already looked like it had been stuck in an oven too long, like... (laughs) this.
1: Like, so that's really? the real reason why they were leaving. It was because their makeup was melting <laughs> was off their just, faces.
0: Their whole face looked like that it was melting. So it was a, um but you know of course you do have concerns about the art. Like nobody wants to buy anything when it looks like it's going to fall off the wall because <laughs> like the humidity so
1: <laughs> it was incredibly humid. I mean, my general impression of the fair this year that it was more of the same unfortunately um of art that I'm sort of familiar with. It was largely unremarkable other than the heat. I think the one thing that did sort of stand out was the uh, tribute to the late dealer Hudson, Uh, where several galleries had a special exhibition dedicated to really a pioneering uh, dealer and like a dealer's dealer, someone who was really known for uh, the emphasis on gallery shows. And it was a little bit of a question or maybe an irony that uh, an art fair was dedicating a series of exhibitions to To someone who wasn't a huge fan of the art fair and really a champion of a gallery, which there's been a lot of hand wringing recently about the role that the art fair is playing in potentially, you know, killing off the gallery model. So the whole thing was a a little strange.
0: Well, I think Magda pointed. Magda Swan of uh, Postmasters pointed out on Twitter that uh, it was a sort of very art fairy thing to have all of the uh, galleries who represented artists that they had basically poached from Hudson over the years <laughs> show the work that he had done along with the foundation. Yeah, uh, I mean,
1: it seems like a, a kind of stunning um, lack of sincerity or something, you know, to, to, to organize that kind of uh, tribute in a way.
0: Well, the I, for me the, the Hudson thing was a little weird. I I couldn't quite glean from anybody who was in in the booth like what the foundation like what the foundation was sort of getting out of this because they, they weren't nothing was for sale. Um, so it seemed like it was really about raising awareness for the foundation. But I don't you know, with the exhibition was not also a sustainability plan, which I guess is not necessarily required, but I was just sort of curious to find out what it it was about. And I think I never really got like a, a, a huge, an answer that really made a lot of sense to me. All that said, like I pretty much love anybody who is connected to the foundation. Like, they're all in it for the same reasons that Hudson was. And they're kind—they're just, like, beautiful people to talk to if you want to talk about art. It was like this oasis in the fair where you could really talk about the art without somebody sort of, like... Looking at you with their watch, and be like, okay, like your time's up. I've in the go. Hudson
1: tribute section. Yeah,
0: that, yeah in because that there section.
1: was some other reason for the art to be there than just for being. You know, it's not just there to be sold. You know, of course it was there to be sold, but we have this other like purpose.
0: Right, that is usually
1: non-existent at the fair.
0: So I mean, so maybe that in and of itself was the reason, and like I think that that's. Um, I mean, maybe I just shouldn't be such a cynical person. Maybe that's my problem. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I'm fairly cynical. Um, (laughs) It it is true, though, it's one area where I actually did have a conversation with uh, one of the dealers from Canada about Daniel Hesidance, who is a a mutual friend and somebody I went to graduate school with at Hunter and saw his, you know, uh, Hudson was an early supporter of his work and exhibited it uh, in the city and really gave him a great opportunity.
0: So, but generally you were saying you didn't like the uh, like other parts of the fair
1: I just thought it was all very familiar, and what was sort of interesting to me was that the sort of emerging section of the fair also seemed to be the most conservative part of the the fair for me. I kind of breezed through it fairly quickly, in part because there was just a kind of lot of formal abstraction. I didn't quite uh, understand how that was the emerging kind of more edgy (laughs) section of it. I mean, it was most of the political art was back in the earlier main sections of the fair.
0: Yeah, I guess I didn't find it any more or less conservative than anything else there. I think the big thing for me was that it didn't stick out as being different, which (laughs) begs the question like, are emerging contemporary galleries that different in style? And I th- I think that if you go into some emerging galleries in Bushwick, you're not going to find that much of a difference. I th- like Tiger Strikes Asteroids is a pretty good example to me where I think there's a lot of sort of formalist stuff, like small scale that I always enjoy going there, but I don't think it looks that different from anything else that we would see. I think that like... P exclamation mark I don't really even know how you're supposed to say that out loud Mm -hmm. but when that was around that was like sort of a genuinely different model because it was sort of graphic design meets art and what they call a mom and pop kunstall I mean the branding for that gallery on its own was just sort of it's this like remarkable work of art plus the shows were always like totally different than anything you'd see somewhere else but you know I think for the most part, it was just sort of production budget that that makes a, a big difference in a lot of these these fairs.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I guess my other thought on that is that, you know, for emerging galleries, it's still such a costly proposition to participate in freeze that you really are discouraged from taking a lot of risks.
0: Oh, and, absolutely. I mean, the other
1: thing that some of the reporting around the fair was focused on the fact that there weren't a lot of sales over, like, a million dollars, and that, in fact, a lot of the sales were at the sort of lower range of price points. And I noticed, like, PPOW had, you know, a table full of ceramic shoes that were, um, you know, they were priced at, like, $1,500 a piece. And so that if they were going to make their money, it was through volume. And, uh, you know, sort of full disclosure, I took that same tact with my recent show in L.A., where the paintings were, you know, $1,500 a piece. It it worked out, but, you know, I had to sell, like, 50 of those paintings versus, like, selling five at a much higher price point.
0: I mean, I feel like that's really interesting and, like, something that hopefully other artists listening to this show will get something out of. (laughs) I...
1: I don't know. It's a lot of work. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, on to uh, sort of other commercial endeavors. Uh, should we talk about closings?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, speaking of the, the pressure that art fairs may be putting on commercial galleries or the hand-wringing around the kind of fate of the gallery model, there have been some notable closings. Elizabeth D. quietly closed down her space in Harlem which was a bit unusual since she had done a significant renovation. Right of the old uh, the original Studio Museum of Harlem space.
0: So that that seems like a pretty big loss. I mean she is she gone forever or well nobody's so, ever no well, dealer all, all is ever I, gone forever. Yeah,
1: I mean, she, you know, she's also still, you know, the co-founder or founder of the Independent Art Fair. It seems like she has a couple of other projects underway, but the closure of the space seemed to come like as it was a surprise. And I know she sent out an email to other dealers sort of letting them know that she was closing that space. I didn't get the impression that this was like a a final announcement of the closure of the gallery forever and that she might reopen it at another time. But also there was no indication of where that might be or when that might be. And considering the kind of pressures on commercial galleries right now, I wouldn't be surprised if she didn't reopen her space. Right. But I think that the... The other question is, you know, you know, there's there's been some sort of question about dealers moving up to Harlem and what that sort of means in terms of gentrification. And, you know, I there wasn't a lot of criticism of Elizabeth D for moving up to Harlem, but it seems like she got gentrified really quickly herself.
0: Huh, interesting.
1: You know, I, I don't really thought put about in, it like that. Well, I don't think you put in that much of a renovation into a space, uh, to to give it up after like a year and a half. I think she was bought out. You know, or there must have been a significant uh, deal with a developer to you know move her out of
0: the space. Mm. I I'm, I'm really curious what the story is on this because this this seems like an untold story.
1: Yeah, you know, and she was actually just on a panel pretty recently uh, at NYU called "There Goes the Neighborhood," and it was a panel oh, about, one <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: it was a panel about the kind of fate of physical gallery spaces, and Elizabeth talked a lot about things that are putting pressure on galleries, but she didn't really go into her, the details of her own situation, which, you're right, it would be great if somebody was able to find out a little bit more about the situation.
0: Right. Um, so other closings, uh, Real Fine Arts shut down after 10 years?
1: After 10 years, yeah, um. which was a a kind of Williamsburg stalwart in a way, kind of like a late comer to the scene in some ways, but stuck around for a long time before moving to the Brooklyn Army Terminal, I think, in Prospect Heights.
0: Now, was that place, uh, was there space subsidy there?
1: I I don't know what the situation was, but it seemed like they moved there and then pretty much shut down, right? Well,
0: it's not like there's a lot of foot traffic at the Brooklyn... Like Navy Yard.
1: Uh, I don't think it's the Navy Yard. I think it's the Army Terminal. Oh, the Army
0: Terminal, which is further?
1: Yeah, further uh, in South Brooklyn. I mean, I think part of this that struck me is that this was a gallery that operated for about 10 years. And didn't quite make that leap from an emerging space into this kind of middle tier or like an established gallery, which is the part of the gallery ecosystem that people seem to be the most worried about. Like, what is going to happen to the mid-tier gallery? And Real Fine art seemed like a gallery that had artists that had established themselves in a way that they should have been able to kind of land somewhere and kind of get to that mid, mid
0: place, I guess,
1: where they could continue on. But I'm just not sure if it's there anymore. Yeah. Well,
0: this is sort of the question. If your goal is to get to the mid tier, like once, like it seems once you get there, like anybody who's there is like, their goal is to leave it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, you can, I mean, the next step clearly would be become a blue chip gallery. But how long does that take? And right. Is there even a, you know, if you're climbing a ladder towards that, are the rungs still even there to get from an emerging space to an upper tier, really established gallery?
0: I keep thinking about Vito Schnabel's gallery because like... Does he ha- has he ever had a gallery? A yeah, real he's gallery? like, no, he's at, I mean, he has like a real space that's existed for many years in the West Village. But like, I mean, he's sort of an interesting... Model in the sense that, like, he started with bags of cash, yeah. You know, no,
1: I mean, I and he was born with the the gal like (laughs) silver spoon in his mouth, whatever metaphor you want to use. Yes, it's the
0: son of Julian Schnabel, he was already established, he was born established, (laughs) he was born into into the, the art world from the get go and seemed to like it quite a bit. And like, his gallery stable is like. It really sort of looks like a 20-something-year-old dude's stable. It's all, like, guy art that makes, like... He was know. an
1: early supporter of the Bruce High Quality
0: Foundation. Right, which, I mean, I love the Bruce High Quality Foundation, but they are also a group of dudes.
1: You know, once their work didn't perform so well at auction, Vito's support also kind of disappeared.
0: right. But in any case like he's someone that like just skipped the middle altogether. Yeah, yeah. He never even bothered with it and he was like, born at
1: the top of the ladder. Yeah. He can I, only fall off it or like climb down, you know. Didn't he get arrested for like selling shrooms or something? I don't yeah, know.
0: that was like <laughs> That was the best.
1: Well, and you know, it's not just real fine <laughs> the arts.
0: Burning Man.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, Regina Rex and their kind of partner gallery Harbor also have uh, closed.
0: That was really sad. I know,
1: and I'm not sure if Regina Rex had hit the ten year mark. It was very close to it, right? Like they started here in Bushwick,
0: and um, that was a artist led project. Artist led right?
1: project with you know the artists sort of served as directors, and it, I remember thinking the program seemed really great because these artists would get together and sort of pitch their ideas and have like really critical discussions around what they were going to show. It wasn't a sort of vanity project or a co-op or a membership deal. It was, you know, artists choosing other artists that they thought would be great to show.
0: And that model worked because one of the reasons that Regina Rex, like, I think got a lot of critical attention was that you'd Went to the shows, and you just never saw a bad show there. Level of consistency of that gallery was just remarkable. Yeah, and
1: it's what happens when you are allowed or create a space for artists to have that kind of critical dialogue and conversation, which I don't necessarily think you can get. In most galleries where you really have one or two people running the show and making the selection. I think that made Regina Rex unusual from the beginning. I don't quite know exactly how it was funded or how it worked, if the artist contributed money or if somebody had a kind of some seed money, let's say, for mm. the thing to operate. But it was it was a really strong space. I know a lot of artists that showed there. I know my wife showed with Harbor Gallery, I'm certainly friends with some of the people that ran that space. And so, you know, when they left Bushwick and they moved to Chinatown there were some excellent shows there but it just seemed like the cost of real estate and running the space it just you know was too much right and that they weren't able to again make that kind of step to a place where they they're selling enough art to cover their expenses and allow them to, to continue to do like really challenging programs. Well there was also another closure that was planned though right which is uh, Cleopatra's their 10-year project is coming to an end.
0: They were responsible for some really great shows. I think for whatever reason, the one that stands out the most to me was their participation in the um, the Dependent Art Fair. And they had uh, they ha- they had a bathroom space which they um, collaborated with uh, with Alex DeCorta. Um, oh yeah. So just back in the day, and he just filled the entire space with fake flowers. <laughs> <laughs> But they... I mean, the thing that was great about them is this, like... They they were so thoughtful. Like, their shows were the, just... Really clever, really well thought out. Like they, they did a great job, and
1: they were able to do that in part because the directors all sort of had other things going on as well, right?
0: That's right. They and they're, I mean, enormously successful in their own right. Like uh, Bridget Donahue has her own gallery, but she had worked at D'Amelio Terrace mm-hmm. before that closed, and then at Gavin Brown. Bridget Finn was a director at Mitchell, and Nash, and was the, like a development person at ICI for years and it just I think she Bridget Finn is now in Detroit but it just seems like
1: no I mean I I I know where you're sort of going with it and I think uh, one thing that I'm starting to understand and (laughs) when I think about the spaces that I really sort of enjoy and that have been doing great programming is that often they're not just art dealers They're either they have another job or they're artists themselves or there's some other purpose to the existence of the gallery than just to sell work. And so if there is a common thread between all of these gallery closures is that these were not just kind of straightforward. Right. Even at Real Fine Arts, I know one of the the gallery uh, founders was also an artist who exhibited at the gallery.
0: In other news, protest news
1: other side of uh, galleries closing.
0: 356 Mission in L.A. is now done. I know.
1: We, we spent some time talking about that over the last sort of year or so. Yeah. Our podcast's been in existence, and uh, it shut down. They announced their closure and uh, just sort of quietly moved on. But it doesn't seem like the end of um, protests in Boyle Heights or L.A. by a long shot. There was actually an incident at Dalton Factory where some protesters came in and splashed the gallery goers and some of the art with paint and a move that kind of went beyond just um, protesting outside the space.
0: Yeah. Well, again, like it it didn't seem like just because 356 mission went away, the protesters would be like, "Okay, great. Job's done. Like.
1: Well, in effect, yeah, you know, we we discussed this a little bit earlier before the podcast, but the protesters sort of had a demand that, you know, they wouldn't be satisfied until 356 mission shut down and gave them the keys basically to the space. Well, they got what they wanted there, but it doesn't mean that, you know, galleries are going to continue to not open in Boyle Heights or L.A., that, you know, LACMA is going to be expanding into South Central. I mean, there's all sort of uh, it's this is going to be an ongoing struggle, I guess, between uh, community residents and artists coming from all over the country. I mean, L.A. is such a destination for artists now. I think Hyperallergic just ran a piece on like good places to sketch in your notebooks around L.A., you know, and it was like an advertisement for coffee shops. I was like, "Oh boy, this is a bit Wow. Much. And then um, back here, you know, on 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 our coast, um, decolonize this place has been, you know, sort of continuing its campaign of protests uh, at the Brooklyn Museum, which they've, you know, released a, a long list of demands the museum needs to address in order to better reflect the demographics and the community in which the the museum exists. There's been a lot of press about this, but I think one of the sort of better pieces that I've encountered uh, was just published by Antoine Sargent in Vice. And it's a kind of long both sides piece where he, you know, sort of does a good job of describing some of the institution's concerns and what they've been doing to address diversity uh, within the museum, but also, you know, getting into the protesters Um, point of view and their demands. And I think, you know, Antoine does a good job of, you know, sort of covering the complexity of the issue. And I know you got a chance to just kind of quickly read it recently.
0: Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a great piece, uh, too. I mean, as Antoine Sargent talks about it, I mean, he frames the whole thing as having started when um, the museum picked a a white curator to curate the African art section and that seemed offensive to many and so he sort of goes into like the both the criticism of like well why is it bad for a white person or a person of any color to be an expert in a field like this and then also like well actually structural racism is a problem and here's all this yeah
1: and i th- i think you know this the protests around the brooklyn museum go back well before you know the the hiring of their curator probably to the Brooklyn real estate summit was, you know, something that generated a lot of, uh, outrage that, you know, we were sort of involved with.
0: Right. Um, Well, it does seem like before that, even, it does seem like the museum itself has a history of being, um, I think very involved with real estate, um, and meaning like, real estate moguls tend to be on their board.
1: Yeah, they have is there there's a guy named David Berliner who's like the president of the Brooklyn Museum board, who's a very oh, right. big real estate uh developer. And that's one of the demands by decolonize this place is to get him off the board, to sort of divest from real estate as it were. I mean, that's a that's good a,
0: luck with that. Well, like <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, I think the thing that that why the Brooklyn Museum is sort of um, the focus of decolonize this place is because the, the borough is much more diverse than Manhattan, you know. For example.
0: Right. Well, and they also I think I, I mean, to their credit, they have a history of programming that serves the community and the residents of Brooklyn.
1: One of the things is, like, they opened the museum up for, like, Friday night dances. Yeah. And that would bring a lot of people in, you know, to a certain degree, like, into physically into the museum, but not necessarily into the gallery. At PS1, when they do the warm-ups, a lot of people go for the DJs and the beer and the party out front, and they rarely you know, actually go into the museum.
0: Right, but that's a white crowd, pretty yeah. much, when you go there. Oh, no, it's, it's a very
1: different, and you can kind of think about it. To I, its credit, yeah, the Brooklyn Museum definitely offers a different kind of experience that's not for white kids You know, to go to a rave, basically. Yeah. Um, and that is true, but I, you know, I think the, the issue is a lot more complicated than just the kind of programming that's developed around to bring the community in. It has a lot to do with the kind of art that's being shown um, and how those decisions get made. I mean, one of the central points of Decolonize This Place is that they've been, they're asking for a decolonial committee uh, to be established within the museum to really influence how it displays its collection, what artists get shown, all of the kind of programming around it. And you know, questions of what what museum artifacts are returned to the countries of origin where they may have been taken from. You know, I, I was sort of asked about this by Aditi Natasha Kinney for a piece she was writing in Pacific Standard. And ultimately, I think I got a soundbite in about how diverse the borough is. And, you know, there's not, the museum may not reflect that diversity. But what I was sort of arguing for in my back and forth with uh, Aditi is that I don't think a a decolonial committee goes far enough. Committee is where things, you know, sometimes get referred to and they just die. That a committee might not have kind of influence that um, adding different people to the museum's board. Like I was sort of arguing for the fact that maybe the Brooklyn Museum should have community stakeholders who sit on the board, who are making decisions at the highest level of the museum And they're not there just because of their fiduciary responsibility, a.k.a. they're just rich people like David Berliner, the real estate developer, but people who are important to the community for other reasons.
0: I mean, I love that idea as something that could structurally be built into the museums because, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, basically like a sort of community board type situation where... It, just as you said, like you have one or two members from the community who actually even if it was twenty percent
1: of the board and that their voices were present and that you know some of these decisions had to be said in front of people that were from different classes. Um, from who who are not part of the real estate industry you know i mean i I think it it would be something just to have those voices present and those perspectives in the same room to sort of push people out of maybe the bubbles that they get to inhabit without being challenged, and you know it 's not going to solve all of the problems, but I think it's one way that would allow the museum to kind of structurally address, you know, some of the ideas and challenges that Decolonize this place is putting forth.
0: You know what we should do? We should have the Brooklyn Museum's executive director, Ann Pasternak, come on the show and talk to us about this. About the feasibility of this idea, because I I actually like it quite a bit.
1: Well, uh, Anne, you know, you're certainly welcome to to come on Explain Me anytime you want, and uh, we will be very polite. And tell you our opinions. Since we're talking about museums, maybe we should move on to a different type of museum that is popping up all around the world (laughs) at this point. And I'm I'm referring to Rabbit Town in Indonesia, which is basically a museum that includes knockoffs of more famous and established Instagram-friendly art installations like Chris Burden's Rows of Lamps at LACMA or uh, a Kusama installation. This place in uh, Indonesia basically is just room after room of, like, terrible, derivative, copyright-violating knockoffs. I I don't know how other way to put it. And have you heard of this?
0: I hadn't heard of it, but you know what? On the one hand, I'm like, what has come of our world? Authenticity is impossible because we live in this Instagrammable world where everything has to be completely, like, Constructed and manufactured. But in the other, I'm kind of like, oh my God, I love this. And I'll tell you why. If we're going to live in like some strange Madame Tussaud's world, why not take the stupidest art and put it in one place? The Kusama sticker piece is terrible. And like the light, the Chris Burton light post installation, I've never been a huge fan of. Like, of course, like, of course, this terrible work is. Can be easily replicated. It's bad. Well,
1: I'm fine with that. I don't. I don't disagree with the possibility <laughs> that you know Chris Burden's uh, lamp thing is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And when I've been to LACMA, it's yeah, just a lot of tourists uh, taking pictures in front of that, and they seem to be enjoying themselves, and it serves a kind of function of making art a little more democratic. It's just that Rabbit Town, I mean, this is how sort of meta it gets and why there's actually a really interesting article by Karithika Veragor on a website called The Outline called Welcome to the Most Instagrammable Museum on Earth about Rabbit Town. Right. Is that Rabbit Town, it includes a room called like the Ice Cream Room, which is a knockoff of... The Museum of Ice Cream, which is another one of these museums that, I mean, it has the name museum in it, but it is just literally a set of rooms for you to take pictures in colorful backgrounds with like lots of sprinkles. So Rabbit Town's not only knocking off Chris Burden, it's already knocking off... The, the knockoff. The knockoff. The Museum of Ice Cream. And there's, you know, a lot of these museums. There's like an egg museum that opened up <laughs> for you to take pictures in, like giant cartons of eggs.
0: Now, that, that museum was needed. <laughs> <laughs> there's,
1: uh, I think Henry Newendorf or something in ArtNet, you know, wrote a roundup of all of these. But I was also surprised to discover that you know, like there is another one coming called the Museum of Pizza by uh, a design group aptly named Nameless Projects, which kind of for me is there's a, a dystopian nightmarish thing. At, and this is from my perspective as an artist. That it's a kind of post artist universe where there's just design groups that all they want to do is create spaces for people to take photos of themselves in the most absurd, ridiculous environments possible. That's that's the future of an arts grad. Go to work for nameless projects as nameless artisan. Copy whatever art existed out in the world, uh, and and make a space where you can sell a lot of tickets and I mean, get a bunch of people through the door.
0: Those artists already exist. We're already in that world. Like this is Ryder Rips, right? Like, well,
1: Ryder, you still know his name, right? It's not like Ryder Rips projects, and <laughs> that you work for Ryder. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's like, I mean, Meow Wolf exists and that, yeah. that started with some good feelings of like, wow, look at, it's like 40 artists are creating their visions in this thing and they're all being paid and it's sustainable. Well, Meow Wolf's now a corporation people get paid like $40,000 a year. They get salaries and benefits, but they are now just making like Meow Wolf product, like make room 5A, make it with a checkerboard and something trippy. Right. It's a job and you know that for me is not exactly what i i signed up for or think art is
0: but have you um, have you watched the latest season of atlanta no <laughs> okay because in atlanta there's a there's an episode where all of that now i can't remember her name danny glover's girlfriend in the uh, or it's on and on, on again off and again girlfriend they decide they're going to go to this party at drake's house Nah. so they like they have some special code to get to the party they're looking for drake like they take they take some drugs like they get lost in this giant mansion finally after like you know this huge odyssey she ends up finding drake and drake is like a cardboard cutout and there are like two women (laughs) beside the cardboard cutout charging ten dollars a piece to get your photo with drake her friend was like what's your problem you were just gonna do this anyway like you were just gonna search out drake and get a selfie with him so you could post it on instagram She couldn't argue. Like, I mean, that's what we all do, right? Uh, Yeah,
1: I mean, we is a a strong word. I don't know if we all do that.
0: Well, I don't know that I would have enough courage to uh, harass a celebrity for a selfie, but...
1: You know, it seems like a good time to revisit, and now I'm going to, I can't even pronounce his name, the French theorist who wrote Simulacra and Simulation, and it's not Boreau who's going to be curating the uh, next... Istanbul Biennial.
0: Who is this guy?
1: Baudrillard?
0: Yeah, Baudrillard. So,
1: Baudrillard, not Boreau Boreau is the man who brought us relational aesthetics. That's and right. The um, short lived alter uh, modern. <laughs> Which didn't quite uh, make it into the lexicon of um, art speak. Uh, But no, I mean, this idea of like simulacra and simulation uh, seems to be pretty relevant to the rabbit towns of the, the art world, sort of. And... I don't think authenticity is something I really search for in the world. I'm totally cool with copies, but I do like some meaning. Oh I know. yeah, no,
0: absolutely. <laughs>
1: um, but I, I, now I definitely have to check out Atlanta. It's, it's been on my list of shows to. Um,
0: so, do we think we'll get access. like more meaning from the new from the uh, Istanbul Biennial, which Nicholas Bourriaud is curating? The guy who coined relational aesthetics, which is. Uh, Wait, what is relational aesthetics? Now I'm into social practice.
1: Tune in to part two of the episode where Patty and I answer the question what's the difference between relational aesthetics and social practice? And we discuss more art. Until then.